Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10. I didn't make a mistake. I know we're in 1 Peter, but we're starting in Matthew, Matthew 10 this week. Welcome. You guys look fantastic. I cannot wait for the time where I can see your teeth again. I think it's coming soon. I pray it's coming soon. Welcome to those online, to my bride, Vicki. I love you. My brother, Mike, Shay, and everybody else in my family that's on and all that are listening. And one of these days, we're going to be all together, and it's going to be glorious, isn't it? It's just going to be awesome. So Matthew 10. We are in a series called Unmistakable from 1 Peter. This week we're going to cover 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 12, but we're starting in Matthew 10 for a reason. A couple months ago, before we were doing Peter, a friend of mine came and asked me, he said, of all the people in the Bible, of all the characters in the Bible, who would you like to meet when you get to the new Jerusalem and the new heaven on earth? Well, that's easy, Jesus. He goes, no, no, you don't get to say Jesus. Uh, Ex-Jesus, after Jesus, who do you really want to meet? And without thinking, I said, well, Peter. There's just something about Peter that I just identify with. He's bold. He's kind of, you know, he says things before he thinks about them. Anybody else do that? I do that. I identify with that. I just want to meet Peter because he's a unique guy amongst the 12 disciples. So Matthew 10, verse 2, tells us a little bit about how special Peter is. Matthew 10, verse 2 says, These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. He's listed first. He's listed first in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't have a list like this. And then he goes on to list uh, the other, the, the next three as brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. But notice Peter is mentioned first specifically. Order matters in this. We know it matters because guess who's listed 12th? Judas. He's on the bottom of the list. Peter's on the top of the list. James, John, and Peter were the ones who were at the transfiguration. They're the ones that were probably the closest to Jesus as Jesus did his ministry. Um, Now, he also names Andrew. Why does he name Andrew? Well, it's because he's his brother. It says right there, he's his brother. And in that culture, brothers are really important. And brothers are important in this culture. My brother, Michael, who I spend a lot of time with, is super important in my life. And I have a big announcement to make. My daughter, Jamie, and her husband, Morgan, are here today. And they're expecting their third child in May. Our fifth grandchild, yes. Uh, The crazy thing is, She's due about a week before the oldest grandchild turns five. So for about a week, Vicky and I are going to have five children, grandchildren under the age of five. That's, that's a bit of a puppy pile, isn't it? But we were hanging out discussing names for the new baby, which is going to be a boy. So Patrick is going to have a baby brother. Nakai is going to have a baby brother. And we're discussing names. And the name Peter popped up, not because of this series. Just, well, what about Peter? And Patrick, who's four and a half, pops up. He says, I like Peter. He turns into Spidey. So I love that. I love that. Like, he's so excited. I'm going to have a superhero for a brother. (laughs) No, but maybe the Apostle Peter will be a little bit more exciting. Now, the other thing about Peter is a lot of people know Peter because he's the one that denied Christ three times. And Jose mentioned that a couple weeks ago. That was a low point of his life. Jesus showed him a bunch of grace, and you can go read in John chapter 21 sometime about how he was restored in that relationship. But I think, my opinion, what we should really, really remember the apostle Peter for was the story in Matthew 16. You don't need to turn there. It's real short. It's real simple. Jesus is talking to all of his disciples, all 12, 
and he's asked them a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus is saying, who do these people say that I am? And if you go read the story, they have a bunch of guesses. They're guessing who he is and all that kind of stuff. But Peter, Peter looks Jesus in the eye. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter got it. And I think that's how we should remember Peter. And Jesus says to Peter when he said that, you are blessed, Peter. My Father in heaven is the one who revealed that to you. So Peter is a special uh, apostle, there's a disciple. He's, he is definitely, and he is an apostle too. He's an apostle, disciple. He's all around good guy, but he's not super bad. Uh, but when we're reading this letter from Peter, what I want us to do as the whole time we're thinking about it is keep in the back of our mind that this is somebody who literally walked with Jesus for three years. He knew Jesus really well, and he knew Jesus was the Messiah, and he actually talked to Jesus face-to-face after Jesus rose from the dead. This is one unique person in the history of the world. So I don't know about you, but I want to hear what he has to say. Do you? Yeah. I mean, let's, get, let's dive in. We're going to look at 1 Peter now. If you want to turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 12. And what I'm going to do, the roadmap for today is I'm going to go over all those verses pretty quickly. And then we're going to come back, circle back, and dive deep into just two of the verses. Well, today's passage, verse 6, starts with three little words. In all this. Well, in all what? In all of last week's teaching. You have to go listen to Jose's teaching for last, from last week. If you didn't, if you missed it, go listen to it. But when he says, in all this, he's talking about in all of what verses 3, 4, and 5 say. And Jose's two main points were this. We're rich in mercy. Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're rich in mercy and we have a rich inheritance. Here's my summary coming up on the slide that summarizes the content of those uh, three verses just briefly so we could uh, read on in verse 6. This is a summary of what Peter said. He said, God is compassionate or God is merciful. He gave us a new life filled with hope through the resurrection of Jesus and a promised eternal inheritance. Keep that in mind all day today. We have new life and we should be filled with hope in this crazy world we live in right now. We should be the ones would be walking around with smiles on our face because we have a promised eternal inheritance and it's going to be good. So we remember that. Okay, so that's what in all this is. That summary. So now what we're going to do is look into these next seven verses, verses 6 through 12. And it's a lot. Peter just packs it in. I think his writing is almost more dense than Paul's, and that's saying something. But Peter packs this thing in. And you can tell he's just passionate about what he's saying. He, just, he can't get it out fast enough. And it reminds me a little bit over Christmas when we had that big snowstorm and we were playing with the grandkids at my other daughter Kelsey's house. And we went inside and she made chili. And this chili was unbelievably good. I mean, I've had a lot of chilies, and I like chili, but this chili was packed with an explosion of flavors, and I said, why, why is that so good? She showed me the recipe. In, addis- in addition to the beef and beans that are in it, here's the ingredients. Onions, peppers, garlic, chili powder, cumin, coriander, red pepper flakes, oregano, and of course, my favorite, cayenne pepper. That's a lot of flavors. It's an explosion of flavors. And somehow it all worked together and you took a bite and you went, oh, this is good. That's a, what you're going to get here in these next verses from Peter. You're going to get this explosion of ideas from Peter. And it's 
good. Let's start with verse 6. In all this, you greatly rejoice. This isn't going to be on the slide, by the way, so turn in your paper Bibles, your, your uh, electronic Bibles, whatever. Uh, I'll read it for you slowly because we're going to make comments on each verse as we go. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So what Peter's doing is connecting rejoicing and trials. And if that doesn't seem like it goes together uh, right now, wait. We'll get to that in a bit. Peter's focus, he changes from it's all good, it's all great, to uh, it's not all good. There are some challenges here. And he, he tells us that we do greatly rejoice even when we suffer. Again, more on that later. Verse 7, these, what are these? These trials, these griefs, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, because even gold perishes when refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's a key phrase, proven genuineness of your faith. Peter's connecting dots for us. He's saying our trials that we go through prove that our faith is genuine that's the purpose and that trial results in praise glory and honor to jesus and he's telling us we need to maintain the faith to the end of our days in verse 8 though you have not seen him who's he talking about he's talking about jesus though you've not seen him and and peter has a lot of credibility when he says this because he's seen him but you he's talking to this group of christians who hasn't seen him like us you love him and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, we don't see Jesus now, do we? We don't. But one day, one day, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to see him face to face. Man, that's going to be a good day. For now, we just love Jesus. We trust Jesus. We have joy in the promised salvation and Peter has just switched us, didn't he? He was talking about suffering and trials to look at Jesus. And that's a good tip for us. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation in Jesus, the prophets, speaking of all the Old Testament prophets and maybe the intertestament prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glory and the glories that would follow. So what, what Peter's doing is reminding us that the Old Testament prophets and maybe other prophets searched intently. They were really, really looking and waiting for the Messiah. And what he's basically telling us is this Old Testament, which is nice and thick in our Bible, right? Why do we read it? Because it all points to Messiah Jesus. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, as in you and me and the first century disciples of Jesus. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, and I love this last line, even angels long to look into these things, right? This is deep stuff. What, what he's saying is it's the Holy Spirit who reveals the gospel through the word of God, through everything that we have going on around us. The Holy Spirit reveals the good news of Jesus. Now, here's a crazy thing. 
Last week's three verses and this week's seven verses, these two weeks together, in the Greek, all one sentence. All one sentence. It's like one bowl of chili with all that stuff in there. And you take a big bite and it's really, really good. So we have to remember last week's message from Jose and the new life and the new hope and the future inheritance as we tie it into this week. And I'm going to summarize it on a slide for you. Verse by verse, and and when we pack it together, what Peter is saying is we greatly rejoice even when we suffer. Amazing but true. We maintain genuine faith all the way to the end of our days, however many the Lord gives us. And we trust in Jesus because that brings salvation. And a reminder of that Old Testament that's kind of hard to read, it points to, to the Messiah. It points to Jesus. And all along the way, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals the good news of Jesus. And we just scoop that in and enjoy the good taste of that. See, what Peter's doing, he's he's encouraging believers. He's encouraging the first century believers, and we should be encouraged today because we're going to have trials, right? We do have trials. And our faith, which is genuine, if we keep it to the end, it brings joy, it brings salvation, and it gives praise to Jesus when we do that. Now, when we look at this list, I'm guessing the one that troubles you the most, the one that's the hardest to digest, though the ingredient you might want to take out of there is that first one. We greatly rejoice even when we suffer. At best, that sounds counterintuitive. At worst, it sounds wrong, doesn't it? I mean, like, really? That doesn't make sense to me. So we're going to dive in deeper into verse 6 and verse 7 and try to make some sense out of how is it that we greatly rejoice uh, when we suffer? Because it's not a command. When you suffer, you must rejoice. No, it's a statement of fact. We rejoice when we suffer. Why is this? Let's read it again. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief, and all kinds of trials. Verse 7, these have come, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor to Jesus Christ. Peter has a goal here. Peter's just not talking off the top of his head. He has a goal. He wants us to know the purpose for our suffering. There's purpose to our suffering, and his answer is right here. It proves our faith is genuine. Suffering proves our faith is genuine. Now, to be a good Bible student, we have to ask right here, what kind of suffering was he talking about? Was he talking about all suffering? Like my my bride, Vicki, is suffering almost four years now with leukemia. That's some intense suffering. But I don't think Peter's talking about that type of suffering here. He's talking specifically about suffering that results, results from the fact that you are following Jesus and you are doing things the way the gospel says to do it. It's that kind of suffering. I think it would be an error to read in the other kinds of suffering into what Peter is saying. Although the principles today can certainly apply to those kinds of suffering, Peter's talking about suffering for the gospel and because of the gospel. Because in this letter, Peter is specifically saying Christians should live differently. Or at least we should, shouldn't we? Jose's titled this whole series, Unmistakable. It should be unmistakable that we're Christians, that we're followers of Jesus because we live 
differently. And one of the ways we really show that we're disciples of Jesus is when we suffer because of our following Jesus, we rejoice. That is a statement. In this letter, Peter's going to have a lot to say about suffering for the sake of the gospel, for Jesus. I'm going to put one more cha- uh, a couple of verses on the slide for you. You don't need to turn there. First Peter 4. I just want to give you an example. There's this one and there's, there's a couple others throughout the letter. This one I just picked because it's so easy just to jump in. It's really, really clear. First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends. So he's talking to you and me and the first century followers of Jesus. Dear friends. And I love the way he says this. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal and the Greek here, you can say fiery trial, fiery temptation, fiery touch, fiery ordeal. That has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, this suffering is not strange. This is normal. This is the way the life is. 13, but rejoice. Again with the rejoicing. 13, but rejoice. And as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When is his glory revealed? When you see him, which we talked about earlier in chapter 1. When we see Jesus, his glory is going to be revealed. We'll probably be speechless because it's going to be fantastic. Across this whole letter, Peter constantly says, Don't be surprised. As a disciple of Jesus, we're going to suffer trials, tested. and We're going to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, again, as good Bible students, did the first century Christians have the same sufferings as we do here in 2022? And I would answer that yes and no. Our culture, meaning here in Oregon, 2022, I'm going to stick with Oregon, it's extremely different than first century life in the Roman colonies and the Roman Empire. In the first century, Christians were persecuted for their different faith and sometimes put to death became martyrs. That still happens around the world in some places. I don't, I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about here, Hillsborough, Oregon, 2022. How do we apply these verses today for us? Well, first we have to look at how they applied in the first century to them. So I have a list for you of four different ways that Christians suffered and were persecuted in Peter's day. The first one is they refuse to worship the emperor as God. They refuse to worship the Roman emperor as God. Second, they refuse to worship at all the pagan temples that were around. And that's where all the commerce happened. So people didn't like that because they were hurting business. Third, they didn't support the Roman ideals of self, power, and conquest. And fourth, they exposed and rejected the horrible immoralities of pagan cultures. And they were really, really immoral. So now we have to ask ourselves, for Oregonian Christians today, we don't really deal with those first two, do we? We don't don't have problems with worshiping uh, an emperor. We don't have an emperor. And we don't have literal pagan temples around like they did back then. But this third and fourth one, they certainly apply today, don't they? Our culture worships self, power, conquest. And parts of our culture are incredibly immoral. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but Portland has one of the highest strip clubs per capita of any city in the nation. Portland is a hub for sex trafficking. Portland is a stop on the drug freeway up and down the West Coast. We live in an immoral culture. See, in short, our culture is often at complete odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's another thing we have to deal with as Christians following 
Jesus. See, the gospel preaches that salvation is only through Jesus, only through Jesus. And we're, a li- we're to live according to the ways of Jesus. Yet our culture doesn't say that. Our culture is pluralistic. And it says we can live pretty much any the way you want, as long as you're happy. The gospel is not popular in that setting, is it? Because the gospel says Jesus is the way. No other way to the Father but through Jesus. Scott McKnight, who wrote one of the commentaries that Jose's been recommending, he says it this way. Our world is so pluralistic that it has become anti-cultural to speak of the necessity of salvation. But we Christians, we say we need to be saved. We need rescuing because our sin separates us from God and we need to be rescued and brought into right fellowship with God. So Christians, we're accused, aren't we, all the time of being narrow-minded. Like, you you can't believe yours is the only way. How narrow-minded is that? You're behind the times. Or worse, you're just stupid. You're not enlightened. Christians are discounted. We're misunderstood. We're even canceled in our canceled culture. Our culture sometimes says Jesus is just a joke, or Jesus is just of many ways. There's all sorts of ways to enlightenment. But the gospel says no. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The abundant life. Just like uh, Peter's Christian audience, we need to reject all the lies of our culture. And the ideas of self, our culture says, it's all about me. It's all about my rights. Do whatever makes me fulfilled. Do whatever makes me happy. But the Christian life says, Humble yourself. Die to self. The first shall become last. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Love God and love others. That's the Christian life. And our culture's morality is at complete odds with that. So Peter tells us in his message, when we suffer because of all these things, because of our faith in Jesus, and we respond correctly, our faith is being tested It's being tested, and we have the opportunity to pass the test to prove the genuineness of our faith, and that will bring glory to Jesus. So how do we do that today, January 16th, 2022? Well, today's main point, which as I always try to do when I get the privilege of talking to you, I want to encourage you and challenge you at the same time, because we need to be encouraged and we need to be challenged. But the main point today is this. The depth of our trust is directly correlated to our commitment to follow Jesus. The depth of our trust is directly correlated to our commitment to follow Jesus. See, this is a real struggle because we're living in a pandemic, aren't we? We're living in a pandemic. But I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not talking about the COVID pandemic. I'm talking about a much, in my opinion, more severe, long-lasting pandemic. And that's the pandemic of distrust. In our culture, trust is an incredibly scarce commodity. You can just listen to or read just about anything. Facebook, CNN, Fox, whatever. It's not long before somebody's calling somebody else a liar, right? And no one seems to trust anybody about everything. Everyone is accused of having an agenda. You know, the politicians, left or right, the CDC, science of fill-in-the-blank, global warming, evolution, whatever. How many times in the last two years have you heard the phrase, fact check? 
I mean, I'm getting kind of tired of hearing it. Like, don't say fact check. Just tell the truth. Let's do that. The unfortunate reality is this. We live in a cesspool of distrust. That's the environment. And here's the really scary thing. In that cesspool of distrust, sometimes it can overflow into our trust in God. So we have to ask ourselves, do we really trust that the Bible is true? Do we trust that Jesus is the Messiah? Do we trust that Jesus rose from the dead? Do we trust that our inheritance secure, is secure because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Do we even believe that God is real? And here's Peter's point. When we suffer because of our faith, we have the opportunity to test and prove there's a depth to our trust. It's not just an inch. It's 10 feet deep. Because when we suffer, we are being tested. And that's a good thing. It's a good test. Because the depth of our trust, again, will, will, it, it tells us that we have an actual commitment to Jesus Christ. So the uh, obvious question and the obvious application today is, how do we deepen our trust? If our trust is that important and the world is lacking trust how do we followers of jesus how do we deepen our trust how do we deepen our commitment to follow jesus and that's a year-long series right that could take a while to really talk about all the ways so i'm just going to give in the last few minutes two just two things how do we deepen our trust the first one is we need to determine without a shadow of a doubt that the bible is trustworthy Second, we need to determine that God is trustworthy. Now, this first one is real personal to me because I had an experience about 10 years after I became a believer. I was about 28. I got saved at about 18. When I was about 28, I woke up one morning and I went, oh no, what if the only reason I'm a believer in Jesus, the only reason I'm a Christian is I grew up in a predominantly Christian country and in a Christian family, and that's why I'm a Christian. What if I had grown up in Afghanistan in a Muslim family? What if I had grown up in, in China in a Buddhist family? What if I had grown up in India in a Hindu family? What if I grew up in Salt Lake City in a Mormon family? Would I be following those faiths? Is this faith mine or is it somebody else that I just kind of grabbed onto? And in my way of thinking, so I've got to figure out is the Bible true? And so what I did, I started looking at these other doctors. I read the Book of Mormon. I read the Quran. I know that sounds crazy, but I did. And I, and I quickly figured out, these are mutually exclusive faiths. You can't be a Mormon and a Muslim. You can't be a Hindu and a Christian. They don't go together. They just don't. Get, they're either all wrong or one of them's right. So which one's right? So then I just start, started studying the source document. Where did this come from? How do we get it in its current form? Where did the Koran come from? That's a fascinating study. Where did the Book of Mormon come from? And I went to my pastor and I asked for help. And he was kind enough to give me a very, very thick and old book now. It's called The Introduction to the Bible, crazy title by Geiser and Nix. I wouldn't recommend it. I'm going to recommend another book now. But at least he gave me something. And I read it. I was, oh, my goodness. The mountain of evidence that says that the Bible has been accurately passed down through the ages since the original autographs is a mountain of evidence. And at the time, I had a good Mormon friend. I said, give me the stuff from your church that shows that. He didn't have anything because there's very, very little evidence. And the same thing with the Koran. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
The Mormon people are wonderful. The Muslim people are wonderful. But I question if their faith is true. The Bible is true. The mountain of evidence is insurmountable compared to the other faiths. Now, if you want to do your own study, I'm going to recommend this book to you. It's called Why I Trust the Bible by William Mounts. He happens to be on the NIV translation team. He's a friend of our churches. He's a good man, good pastor, good father. He loves Jesus. And this book is fantastic. And it's, I'm going to leave it up here on the front if you want to come up afterwards and flip through it to see if you want to order it. It's like 18 bucks. It's a good read, and it'll help you answer that question, why should I trust my Bible? And I think you'll come to the conclusion that we can trust our Bible. When we open it up, it's the Word of God. Well, the next thing, if you trust it, do you read it, right? And I know this is convicting, and I know everybody's going, oh, here we go. The guy speaking to tell us to read our Bible again. And yes, I'm going to tell you to read your Bible again, but I'm going to encourage you in a different way. I have a group of men that I meet with regularly, and we talked about this this week, because I said, hey, I'm going to be talking about this. Why do you guys think people don't read their Bible as much as we know we should? We had this discussion, and here were some of the reasons. One, we don't understand it. Well, we live in an age where it's easier to understand the Bible than ever before. Go to thebibleproject.com. Go to biblicaltraining.org, which is Bill Mounce's organization, or go get a good study Bible. There's so many free helps. Or get into a community group. Ask questions. Ask the staff here. Ask, ask, ask. The Bible is understandable, but it takes a little bit of work. The second reason we say people don't read the Bible is because of distractions. Anybody distracted? (laughs) In the 21st century, more distractions than ever. Whether it be social media, Netflix, sports, on and on and on. But does the Bible take first place? It should. A third reason, don't miss this one, Satan doesn't want you to read it. Satan does not want you to read your Bible. When I was first discipled, uh, the guy that discipled me, he said, this book will keep you from sin and sin will keep you from this book. And it's true. Satan's got a W in the win column if he can get you to not read it because it's so full of truths in a culture that doesn't have truth. And then the fourth reason, I think this is what I really want to help you with and encourage you, is we've somehow gotten ourselves into the idea of reading for information and we come up with these grandiose ideas, we're going to read all this, and then we fail, then we give up and we cast it aside. Now some of you in this room... I love doing this on January 16th, right? Some of you in this room on January 1st said, this is the year I'm going to read the entire Bible. And if you're doing that and you're keeping up with the plan, amen, keep going, do it. It's good to do. I've done it several times, but I would say this year I'm not. And if you have planned to read the whole Bible this year and on January 16th, if you're more than three days behind, you need to find a different plan. (laughs) That one's not working for you. Maybe adopt the plan I'm doing. My wife Vicky and I, we're going to read through the whole New Testament this year. It's a chapter a day, sometimes only half a chapter. It's very doable. And we're going to succeed. For me, it's good to read the whole Bible in a year because you get the overview. But most years, I don't because I don't want to just read for knowledge. And hear me if you haven't heard anything else about reading the Bible. Hear this. We don't read the Bible to get information only. Yes, we do read the Bible to get information, but the main reason we read the Bible is for transformation. Because when you read the Bible and it soaks into your soul, you become a better person, a different better person. I'm standing here today 
who I am today with some good and some bad. I would be completely different if I haven't read the Bible all the last year. I'm a better person, more well-balanced, more loving to my wife, on and on and on, solely because I spent a little bit of time reading the Bible. And I'm not trying to pump myself up. I'm just telling you how it works. It works this way. Because I've gone through periods of my life where I didn't read the Bible. And it does not go well for me. It's a death spiral. So I'm telling you, it doesn't matter how much of the Bible you read. It matters if you read it consistently. And here's the most convicting thing I could say, and I hope it doesn't hurt you. I hope it doesn't discourage you. I hope it encourages you. Just right now, last seven days, how many days have you opened the Bible? If the answer is zero, I'm actually excited for you because you have the most room for improvement, and your life is going to be radically changed when you go from zero to something. If you've been reading it three, four times a day, I would encourage you to move up towards six or seven. Your, your goal is consistently have a touch with God every day. The next thing we have to do is we have to determine that God is trustworthy. William Mounts, who wrote this book I just described, when he was teaching once, he had this beautiful line. He said this, and here's a guy who's a Greek scholar. He's, he knows the Bible. He's a Bible geek. And he said this, the point is not to fall in love with the Bible. It's to fall in love with its author. How good is that? You see, we need to spend time with God. Have you ever noticed that your trust of a person deepens the more time you spend with them. Most of you know Jose as the main preacher here, and I've known Jose for 15 years, so I trust him. And I've known my wife for 38 years, and I trust her even more, because I've known her for longer, and I obviously spend a lot more time with her than with Jose. The more time you spend with somebody, the more you trust them. Well, here's some good news. God is older than Jose. God is older than my wife. God has been around forever. And he's proven trustworthy forever. But you and I, we have to spend time with him to soak that into our soul. And in the Christian life, we call that time prayer. But as soon as I say prayer, most of you guys go, oh, no, that's hard. And I want to change your mind about prayer right now. I just read a book by Henry Nouwen, who is... Uh, it's got this incredible quote. I love it. He says this, prayer is wasting time with God. And I love that. Now, don't misunderstand him. He's not saying prayer is a waste of time. He's saying prayer is wasting time with God. By that, he's, he's saying that we don't want to always ask for things when we pray. We don't need to accomplish anything when we pray. We just need to be in relationship with God, be in the presence of God, like we are with our friends and our spouses and on and on. Henry Nouwen goes on to say, prayer is being unbusy with God instead of being busy with other things. And would you agree that that's a good thing to do in 2022? And if you need help with that, we have this prayer area in the back. And after the gathering, you can just go back. To, after actually I finish speaking, you go back there and meet some friends and they could help you with prayer. But don't make prayer hard. And that's my big encouragement to you today. Don't make reading the Bible hard. Make it easy. Don't make prayer hard. Make it easy to spend time with God. Okay, so what do we do to finish today up? We need to take inventory, don't we? Because the reality of life is some of you in this room are in trials right now. You're in a time of testing because of your faith right now. And others of you are fortunately not, but you will be because 
because Peter promises it. Jesus promises it. So for those who are in trial right now, my word to you, my encouragement to you is persevere. Keep going. Maybe you're in a marriage that's incredibly hard, and that is hard. Maybe your, your marriage is tough because you're not on the same playing field spiritually. Maybe one's a Christian, one's not. Maybe one's growing in their faith, one's not. Or there's something challenging, like off the charts, hard, and every day is hard. And everything in our culture is saying, leave him, leave her. You deserve to be happy. That's not the goal of marriage, by the way, if you read the Bible. But your spouse is a gift from God, and you need to work through this trial. It's a test of your faith, and I'm encourage you to work through. Maybe you're in school or in a workplace right now that happens to be just the cesspool of distrust we've been talking about, and you're tempted to go with the crowd, to fit in, to laugh at inappropriate jokes, to not take racism and all these other things that are going on in our world seriously, like the world does it. And, and you're, you're, you're challenged and you're tempted to compromise your integrity for the sake of advancement. You're, you're tempted to cheat or cut the corners. That's not the way of Jesus. And we are under a test of our faith. And our response proves the genuineness of our faith. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as we, as we wrap up. But for those who are in between trials right now. What's, what's our job? I happen to not be in one right now, and I kind of like that better, I must admit. But I don't have to persevere. I have to prepare for the next trial because it's coming. We have to prepare for the next trial. How do I do that? Well, first, I tell myself, don't be surprised when it comes, right? The next trials, I don't know if it's a week away or a month away, but it's coming, and I prepare. And how do I prepare? I get into my Bible. I spend time with God. I pray. I spend time in community. I spend time learning. So whether we're pres- preserving, uh, I'm sorry, whether we're persevering in a trial right now or preparing for the next trial, Peter has a word of encouragement for us. And his big encouragement as we continue to read this letter is this, God is trustworthy. He always has been and he always will be. The history of the Christian church is fraught with difficult times and failures, isn't it? But God doesn't fail. God is faithful. Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus is faithful. The Holy Spirit will never fail us. He'll always be with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time today as we dig into your word and we realize that amongst the pandemic of distrust that we live in, that you are the one who's worthy, holy, and worthy of our praise.